Most of the time when I'm walking through a text like this, I will give you the sermon title up front and then spend the rest of the time unpacking it. I do the same with the sermon points. I give it to you, then I'll show you from where I pulled it. Sometimes I will give it to you and you're like, where in the world did that come from? And two verses later, you're like, oh, that's where. That's giving it to you up front and then showing you where I got it on the back end. I am not doing that today. Instead of giving you the sermon title at the beginning, I'm going to give it to you at the end. Instead of giving you the sermon point and then unpacking it, I want us to arrive at the sermon points. I want them to just sneak up on us. You'll receive the sermon point at the end of the section instead of the beginning. Now, I know our church, and I know you ferocious note-takers are like, Kyle, I don't like this. I can't fill in the first blank. I'm going to ask you to trust me and just go on this journey with me. After the brutal death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter, a first century follower, writes to churches spread across Nero's empire. Nero was a paranoid man. So paranoid of plots to assassinate him within his own family that he had his stepbrother, mother, and his wife killed. He was just an unstable fellow. He hated Jewish people. He loved to kill Jewish people. He was like the Adolf Hitler of his day. It's no wonder that people living under the rule of each of those men thought they were the Antichrist. Chronologically, sometime after these churches received this letter, Nero had Christians sewn into the skins of wild beasts and then fed to dogs. So naturally, it will not be surprising for you to hear that Peter is writing about suffering. Christians suffered a lot under Nero. But remember, none of that stuff has happened yet. It will be a few years before all that is unleashed. Peter writes about suffering here, but not only about persecution suffering, but about general suffering. We taste pain and brokenness because we are in a fallen world. Jesus told Peter this. In this world, you will have trouble. Peter is giving the same message as the ascended Christ. However, he uses a metaphor for suffering. Fiery trial. Peter began speaking on this subject by addressing his readers with the term of endearment. Beloved. This is a common pastoral word conveying tenderness and compassion. The whole tone of the passage is pastoral. He didn't say, hey, you boneheads living under Nero's rule. Yeah, I'm writing to you. No. From the outset, Peter begins this section with the heart of a pastor. I've picked up on this and frequently use the same term of affection when speaking to you. So whatever Peter says next, we know it's coming from love. We know it's coming from a pastor's heart. It's being said for their good. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. Now, church, let me walk out the Greek. Then I'll walk out the reader's fiery trials. Then I'll walk out your fiery trials. The Greek first. The verb tense is a rare optative mood, indicating that the readers were currently at that very moment being surprised by the development of fiery trials in their lives. This word doesn't simply mean astonished. It means a bewildering astonishment. This can't be happening to me. They are surprised. And Peter says, don't be. And don't think it's strange. The original word gives us our English word, xenophobia. Xenophobia is the fear of strangers. In other words, when you encounter a fiery trial, you are not encountering a stranger. You must stop acting like you haven't seen him before. He is not a stranger. He's a frequent acquaintance. Now that's the Greek. Let's walk out the reader's fiery trials. This is not the first time that Peter has broached the subject of suffering with these readers. He's done it before, but he's doing it now in a new and fresh way. He says, you will face fiery trials. You will face fiery ordeals. Fiery ordeals are broad. It could be sawn into animal skins. It could be a verbal ordeal. You are assaulted verbally. That's what verse 14 tells us. The degrees of suffering and the forms of affliction are different for each reader in these churches. Some were facing fiery health trials. Some were facing fiery family trials. Some were facing fiery marriage trials. Some were facing fiery work trials. Some were facing fiery friend trials. That's their trials. Now let's walk out your trials. I want to give you the same advanced warning that Peter gave these churches and that Jesus gave Peter. Beloved, you are going to experience hard days on this earth. You are going to be hurt, misunderstood, misquoted, reviled, cut. You're going to be cut you're going to bleed. You're going to cry. You're going to mourn. Do not think it's strange. Every once in a while in moments of self-pity, I think, why am I facing this? And then the Holy Spirit of God just slaps me in the back of the head with God's word. And he says, read this verse. Expect hard days. It's now time for me to drop a grueling and grim truth this isn't heaven so don't be shocked when hell shows up i've always appreciated advanced warnings when weather people say a flood is coming get out i appreciate the advanced warning when a tornado is coming and i hear the sirens i appreciate the advanced warning when my mom used to tell me on certain days don't try me today I appreciate the advanced warnings. If I try mama, I'm going to get slapped in the mouth. An advanced warning. That's what this text is for us. It's completely normal for the Christian to experience fiery trials. 
It's not unusual. It's not strange. It's not shocking. It's not out of the ordinary. Fiery trials are the ordinary. It's just Monday for the Christian. R.C. Sproul wrote a book entitled Surprised by Suffering. Great title for a book. Bad way to go through life. Beloved, you will face excruciating trials. When you do, it will be easy to become mentally confused, emotionally drained, physically exhausted, and spiritually spent. Where is God? Can he not stop this persecution? Can he not stop this cancer? Can he not pull me out of this fiery trial? Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Notice the next three words. It is the purpose statement to test you. Peter reminds surprised Christians why suffering comes. Its purpose is to refine you. Fiery trial is a, is a metaphor throughout the Old Testament. Peter didn't invent the language. He's recycling it. One of the common vocations of the day was goldsmithing. And these men would work mainly with gold, but other precious metals as well. And the goldsmith would heat up the furnace to an extremely high temperature. And he would put the gold in a crucible, like a cup, or sometimes the crucible was, was a pot, and he would heat it so hot that it would melt the gold. As the gold melted into liquid form, the impurities would bubble to the top. The goldsmith then would use some tool to remove the impurities, to, to drag the dross right over the lip of the crucible. The trial, the trial you're currently facing is expected to have that same positive effect on you. This is a refining fire. It's meant to refine you, to heat up your life so that the impurities can be dragged away. Well, I, I don't like the fire, Kyle. It's hot. It, it hurts. And I'm burned. Beloved, God has good purposes for allowing you to go through the fiery trial. And it's now time for me to drop a comforting and calming truth. The heat of this trial will only melt away what shouldn't be in your life. God puts you in the fire not to destroy you, but to develop you. Don't go through life attempting to always avoid the fire. Go through life learning how to respond to the fire. God can and does use fiery trials to further his own ends. One pastor said, God hates sin so much and loves his children so much that he will spare us no pain to rid us of what he hates. Tim Keller uses the parent-child relationship to illustrate this truth. He says, there is no way of you bringing your children to maturity. There is no way of you bringing your children to maturity without them at times accusing you of cruelty. And all my children said, amen. <laughs> in normal conditions, in normal conditions, the gold and the impurities can coexist. 
but in the crucible, they cannot. I must tell you something that may be disturbing to you. And I'm not trying to say it for shock value. I desire to tell you because you need it while you're in the crucible. You are not in the fire by blind chance or by some random collision of atoms. The fire is not something strange that has interfered with God's purposes. The fire is God's purpose. God is the one controlling how hot it gets in the crucible. He will not release the heat until he sees the impurities are gone. Hold on to this truth, dear one. The heat will never get any hotter than God desires. He's a master goldsmith. He knows just the right heat not to destroy you, but to purify you. Everything you are facing had to pass through his permissive hands. Don't be surprised when you go through the fire. And don't be surprised that God has a purpose for it. Now I realize how smug that can sound. The last thing I want to do is give you three steps on how to handle suffering. Steps don't help an embittered soul. Steps don't help when you're crying, God, do you care? Steps don't help when you're doubled over in pain. But getting a glimpse of God will. And that's my goal. For you in the fire to learn to look up and see God. You are under the watchful eye of God. Your suffering is not an indication that God has abandoned you. It is an indication that God is at work in you. It's time now for me to drop a suffering and sovereign truth. God rules over your fiery trial. Nothing strikes you apart from God's loving and sovereign control. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Peter uses a preposition to introduce a contrast, but... You're suffering, but here's the contrast, rejoice. This is a present tense verb, meaning it's not a single isolated response, but a repeated continual activity. Instead of being thrown off balance by trials, instead of grumbling and complaining in the fire, continually and repeatedly rejoice. Rejoicing when you're in the crucible can only happen if you know that you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. This does not mean that you are to enjoy suffering or downplay the pain in suffering, nor do you go out and seek suffering. You don't lead with your chin and seek out trouble. Stephen Davey says you don't get any merit badges by saying, oh Lord, thank you for making all these miserable things happen to me. No. You're rejoicing because you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. And you're being drawn into deeper fellowship with Christ. Rejoice that you're in the very thick of what Christ experienced. Verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad 
when his glory is revealed. Not only rejoice, but Peter throws on top of that, be glad. Could you stop with all the happy words, Peter? The crucible doesn't make me feel happy, happy, happy. Church, you can rejoice and be glad because if you share in Christ's sufferings now, you will share in his glory later. And, and, and whatever glory that the fire is causing you to lose here is not to be compared to the glory you will receive then. Well, well, I don't feel like being happy. Well, you can control your emotions. You have dominion over them. You're not ignoring your circumstance, but you're recognizing the privilege. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish theologian in the 1600s, said, when you're put in the cellars of affliction, remember, the great king keeps his best wine there. The king doesn't keep his best wine in the courtyard where the sun shines, but in the cellar where the affliction resides. Now, those of you who are non-Christians, you're hearing this and you can't understand it. How the fire leads to ultimate gladness you know why that happens? You know why you can't understand that? Because you haven't experienced the grace of God. John Piper, who is a card-carrying, full-blooded, unwavering Christian hedonist, actually loves the book of 1 Peter, a book on suffering, because he learned what Paul Brand, the missionary surgeon to India, wrote in a book. The name of the book is The Gift of Pain, and Paul Brand said this, and I quote, I have come to see that pain and pleasure come to us not as opposites, but as Siamese twins, strangely joined and intertwined. Nearly all my memories of acute happiness, in fact, involve some element of pain and struggle, end quote. It's time now for me to drop a glad and happy truth. This one's not original with me. This one is from old Charlie Spurgeon. He said, those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Verse 14. If, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Evidently, some of the fiery trials these readers were going through were minor, at this time, minor verbal assaults for just being a Christian. But Peter uses this minor verbal assault to represent all fiery trials. Peter says you are blessed, present tense, you're currently being blessed. This is a, this is a Trinitarian verse in the midst of a Trinitarian passage. We see God the Son here. We see God the Holy Spirit here. We see God the Father here. All three persons are involved in your suffering. How? They are empowering you in the midst of your fiery trial. John Piper says, you may think, I will not be able to bear it. But if you are Christ's, you will be able to bear it because he will come to you and rest upon you. The Holy Spirit will reveal enough of glory and enough of God to satisfy your soul and carry you through. 
It's now time for me to drop a puzzling and penetrating truth. When the fire comes to rest on you, take heart. The Holy Spirit will sustain you until it's extinguished. The fire never gets so hot that it drives away the Spirit. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter wants to clarify this. There is a suffering that we can bring on ourselves. There are fiery trials that we create because of our sin. Church, you need to evaluate and see if you are causing some of your suffering. You must distinguish between suffering for Christ and suffering for sin. Peter has done this multiple times in the book already. He says, not all suffering qualifies you for God's blessing. Ask the question, why am I suffering? Suffering for sin doesn't open up the promises we have before us. Such blessing is not bestowed upon every type of suffering. You have no right to complain if you're suffering because you're a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. Now, one of these is not like the other. The first three seem like extreme sins, and the last one seems minor. But Peter groups them all together. The first three sins were punishable by death in the first century. One theologian says, what Peter is saying here is that the believer can't say as he's taken to jail or the gallows, man, man, am I ever about to suffer for being a Christian? Woe is me. You might be a Christian, but you're about to suffer for sinful behavior. You are suffering. You are going through a hard time because it's your fault. You sinned and you're paying the consequences for it. Now notice the last sin on the list. Meddling. That word has the same root word as pastoring. It means pastoring in someone else's business. Pastoring where you don't belong. A meddler is an agitator, watching over another's affairs. And apparently there were some in the churches who had a reputation for being troublesome. But at the same time, running around saying, oh, I'm in the fire. No, you created this fire. The old King Jimmy has the best translation here. <laughs> it says, don't be a busybody, a mischief maker. Don't do improper interference in other people's lives. Don't bring fiery trials upon yourselves. In most churches, meddling is the accepted sin. May it not be here. It's time for me to drop a bruising and blunt truth. Some of your fiery trials were lit by you. People may still pat you on the back and console you about how hot it must be. They may still shower you with pity, but deep down you know you're the arsonist. Now, if you're asked the question, why am I suffering, and you found that it's not the fault of your own, then move on to verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let's pause here. Job says in this case, Peter is instructing his readers to live in such a way that the only crime against the state or society for which they are guilty is the Christian faith. 
It's interesting, the word Christian is only found three times in the New Testament. Here, and in Acts 11, and in Acts 26. It was not a name we gave ourselves. It was a derisive designation given to us by non-Christians. It was a slur, an insult. And you may ask, well, how did they come up with, with the slur? Well, Herodians, that it ends in I-A-N-S, Herodians were those who followed Herod, the party of Herod. Christians, same ending, I-A-N-S, were those who followed Christ, the party of Christ. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this, if they're on you because you broke the law or disturbed the peace, that's a different matter. But if it's because you're a Christian, don't give it a second thought. Do not be ashamed. This is for the kid who will not look at pictures on his classmate's iPhone. And then all the little kids ask him, why not? And he's tempted to, to make up some excuse other than Christ would not be pleased with me. Don't be ashamed. This is for the teenager whose classmates talk about all their weekend escapades and then ask, what did you do this weekend? And you're tempted not to mention church. Don't be ashamed. This is for the college student who sits in class and his prof asks the question, raise your hand if you believe that God created all things. And the big bang is a big lie. And his hand is tempted to stay down. Don't be ashamed. This is for the adult. When the mob comes with their pitchforks and lanterns and cancel you because of your biblical belief and you're tempted to give in to their desires. Don't be ashamed. This is for the fisherman whose friends invite him to go fishing on Sunday morning and he's tempted to say, I'm all fished out. Which may be true, but it's not the real reason you're not going. Don't be ashamed. This is for the mother who is on a play date with other moms and one of them asks, why don't you let your child watch this YouTuber? And you're tempted to say, oh, I've just never heard of them. Don't be ashamed. Put Christ on the table. You, you can't do the things you once did because it would bring a reproach on the name of Christ. Say that. I'll give you a fortifying and forceful truth. We are not ashamed of Christ because he was not ashamed of us. And if following him places us in a fire, we will glorify his name from the fire. Do not let the fire weaken you. Let it embolden you. Now Peter's going to transition. He's now going to return to the thought of the fiery trials purifying us, sanctifying us. Notice verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Let's stop there. God will expunge the world of sin. And he begins with us. Judgment begins at the household of God. This phrase household transports us back to the Old Testament. It's speaking of the Old Testament temple, the house of God. Peter is alluding to a passage in Malachi where God is coming to his temple with a double portion of judgment. One to purify his worship, 
worshipers, and then two, to consume the wicked. The Lord will purge his people, his temple. He comes in refining and purifying. God's judgment commences with Christians. He began judging in the church and will move outward to judge those outside of the church. Notice as he continues. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Two groups of people in the verse. Those who obey the gospel and those who do not. There's a judgment for those who obeyed and a judgment for those who did not obey. Fire in God's house and fire outside of God's house. For Christians, hear me, for Christians, the judgment is purifying. For non-Christians, it's punitive. Two different judgments. For non-Christians, it's an eternal hell flame. For Christians, it's a temporary earthly flame. God rightly judges the saints first, but ultimately judges sinners last. It's clearly implied. It's better to suffer earlier than later. This is added incentive for these readers to remain faithful. Verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's like Peter is wiping the sweat off his brow. We barely made it. This does not mean they barely got saved, but it means they were saved with difficulty. John MacArthur says, Peter is pointing to the difficulty with which believers are brought into final salvation through the fires of unjust suffering, divine purging, and God-ordained discipline. End quote. If God in his providence permits his children to be disciplined by such suffering, imagine how bad it would be for those non-Christians. See what Peter's doing? He's using a lesser to greater argument. God's sorting out humanity. Uh, My dead mentor, the Spurge, said, if the wheat is winnowed, what is to become of the chaff? If God cast even the gold into the fire, what is to become of the dross? If that which is really valuable yet has to be tested, what is to be done with the mire and the clay? Oh, that all who have no part or lot in Christ would consider this solemn truth. Consider it, non-Christian. Repent now before it's too late. I'll give you a horrifying and hellish truth. Earth's fires are a picnic compared to eternity's fires. Without Christ, hell is your eternal home. You are not promised tomorrow, which is why I'm pleading with you to repent today. There is nothing you're holding on to that is worth spending eternity in hell. May God warm your heart to see Christ as beautiful and sin as ugly. Peter isn't finished. He has one more word for Christians in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter calls God creator. 
because he wants to emphasize God's total control over everything. Over every fire, every trial, every furnace, every crucible. He's the architect of all things. Beloved, entrust your soul to God's care while suffering. Our Savior did this on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And trust is a banking term. It means to deposit your life in God's bank. Entrust your past trials, your present trials, and your future trials. Entrust your disappointments and your successes, your highs and your lows, your burns, and your scars, your questions, and your fears. Entrust it all to God. It's a present tense verb. You have to do this daily, every day, all throughout the day, over and over again. Be constantly entrusting your life to God. Beloved, you can trust God's faithful and providential rule over your life. The creator of the world is sovereign over the world. And this is why we never collapse. It's a good time now for me to finally give you the title of this sermon. It's Fiery Trials and a Faithful Creator. Faith Family Church, whatever unfolds for us this week, let us entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Fiery Trials and a Faithful Creator. Well, I hear some of your Bible zipping up already. This is when most men would end. But I am not most men. I have two applications for you. Application number one. No matter how hot your crucible, you've been spared from the hottest crucible. Jesus went through an ultimate fiery trial for you on the cross. He bled and died for sins not his own. He faced the wrath of God. First, he faced the wrath of man. And when it was finished, he faced the wrath of God. Church, it was poured out on him. So it didn't have to be poured out on you. Beloved, I know you're being hurt. I know you're being burned. But there is no first, second, or third degree burn that God will not completely heal in the end. You will have no physical burns or mental scars in heaven because the only burns and scars will be in his hands. It will be an eternal reminder of mercy. Application number two. Your salvation rests not on how well you endure the flames, but on how well Jesus did. The author of our text, Simon Peter, he once walked at a distance following a chained and shackled Jesus. This was Peter's fiery trial. This was his moment. He had a moment to stand for Christ before the mob. But he cowered in shame. 
he caved to the media mob. He changed teams. He switched jerseys. He didn't wear the name Christian faithfully. He said, I'm not of that party. Because of a failed, fiery trial, he stopped pursuing Christ. But Christ did not stop pursuing him. By a beachside, the resurrected Jesus Christ restored Peter. He fed Peter fish and grace. Years later, years after Peter wrote this letter that we are reading, he faced another fiery trial. This time, he would pass. This time, he would succeed. History tells us that Nero ordered that Peter be crucified. Peter said, I'm not worthy to die in the same manner as my master. So Nero crucified Peter. Upside down. Peter went to glory. He went from suffering to glory. His pattern will be our pattern. Fire now. Glory then. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.